Hi, this is Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor, and you're listening to the Fairy and Fantasy class. Hello, and welcome to Fairy and Fantasy 24. Today, Professor Olson continues his discussion of George MacDonald's The Princess and the Goblin. Okay, so... Last time we were talking, we talked most of the time about the goblins and a little bit at the end about uh, the grandmother. Um, and we were looking at sort of the three-level world that we get here. That is the terra cognita of the downstairs in the house, the the subterranean world of the goblins, which is kind of other world but also connected, and then the clearly fairy upstairs of the grandmother. Um, and I want to be looking in this section. I want to kind of flip that a bit because, of course, the grandmother uh, is much more involved and gets by far, I think, the most the most fascinating and interesting chapters in this section. Um, but I do want to still start with the goblins because I don't want to totally neglect them because we do learn some interesting things about them. What did you notice from this section that we didn't see in the previous section? Anything that you would want to add or you know, sort of ways in which our understanding of the goblins has been changed or increased? During the section that that really struck you, not quite sure. This is a comment that Mary's considering because it's more of a plot comment than a thematic comment. But my my suspicions of what the goblin's plan was, pretty, it's pretty being pretty clearly telegraphed now, and like you know, my suspicions were pretty strong, but it's pretty pretty clear now that you know, <laughs> yeah, what the plan is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you know, it's it's one thing. It's it's, it's clearly a choice that McDonald makes. Um, in this story, that is in his telling of the story. Although, as I said last time, the narrator's voice is can be deceptively simple and straightforward, and often he's very much more tricky than it might seem at first. But his narrative approach is pretty simple. He's not telling a very complicated and devious plot, and he is very clearly telegraphing it. That's obviously one of the approaches that he's taking to accommodate this for children. Um, and I... I'm not sure he's wrong to do that either. Uh, I mean, that it seems to make a lot of sense, but I agree. Um, you know, we have this, this mystery and Curdy still trying to figure it out, but yes, it is, it is becoming amply clear what plan A of the goblins, plan B being to flood the mines and kill all the miners, right? But plan A, the mysterious, so, so let's, let's, let's spell it out. What is plan A? You're going to kidnap Irene and make her the new queen or something along those lines? Yes, you're going to kidnap Irene, and they're going to make her the bride of... Hairlip. <laughs> the bride of Hairlip. Uh, which, well, doesn't that sound like a terrible movie title? <laughs> the bride of Hairlip. Um, I'll have the potential, actually, for comedy, anyhow. But she's going to be the bride of Hairlip. Now, but what do we see in that? How do they talk about that? Because this point, when this plan comes under discussion... Still not totally explicitly, but they all, that is the king, queen, and Harewip, all know what they're talking about. Um, what did you find interesting in their discussion of Plan A, Kelly? Um, the, the notion of this queer marriage is as distasteful to the goblins as it would be for the humans. It's sort of a matter of stature for them, you know, seeing how much pain they can inflict. Uh, even at the expense of their own, you know, personal enjoyment, I guess. Yeah, I mean, the the queen is very emphatic about how this is below the dignity. Okay, and and, and the king characterizes it as an act of self sacrifice by Harold, right? Though at the same time, we can see when Harold brings it up, he seems to be quite looking forward to this prospect, and then the queen rebukes him. And then the king is like, oh, well, of course, Harold is really just talking about sacrificing himself for the good of the goblins, right? But there is clearly that tension between their 
desire. I mean, again, it's it's sort of a, you know back to some of the things we were looking at last time. How on in one way the goblins are below the humans, and in another way they or they certainly consider themselves above them, but. There are also times when they sort of betray not only that they are below them, um, not only geographically, but uh, but in their natures. But even that they, like, why would they seek them if they despise them as much as they say? Why would they want to marry her? What's the what's the? I mean, why not? I mean, if you just want vengeance against the king and his family, why not just you know I don't know kidnap Irene and torture her to death? Why make her the queen, the next queen of the goblins? Because, of course, we have to remember, as the current queen never forgets, that the previous queen, the first wife of the Goblin King, was a sun woman. We don't know quite the circumstances of that marriage, exactly. Um, though it seems likely to have been under similar kinds of circumstances. Um, yeah, yeah. Jordan, what were you thinking? Um, one thing that kind of puzzled me, but I think I've got a handle on it, was um, when, when <coughs> the queen is talking about her, her toes, and she... She's like, you nasty wretch, do you mean to insinuate I've got toes? And the counselor points out, you do have toes. And she's like, yes, I do have toes. I'm awesome. And so she's, like, she's angling to be reminded how awesome she is by how, how many toes she has. Three, to be precise. One on one foot and two on the other. I, I, well, I think that's Harriet who has those toes. Um, it says... She denies her toes. Oh, oh you're right. Harelip has toes. A, oh, a couple toes. That, that makes more sense. Three toes. Yeah, because he's the son of the sun lady. Of queen number one. I assume the queen was trying to compare herself to uh, the yeah, queen yeah, favorably. Yeah. No, it's a little confusing in that passage, but yeah, no, it's Harold who has the toes. Now, Curdy in his song insinuates that she keeps her shoes on in bed because she has toes, right? As he's making up something insulting to say to her. Um, she is a goblin. She is purebred goblin, right? What do you make of her appearance? I mean, apart from her granite shoes... Do you remember the description of her face? Which could not really be called beautiful. It's like perpendicular eyes. <laughs> yes! Her <laughs> eyes her eyes are set one above the other, and like one is turned sideways and one is turned straight upside down. Uh, they're egg-shaped, egg-shaped rather than, you know... Yeah, like they're egg-shaped, egg-shaped. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The, <sighs> her nose is broader at the end. Her nose is broader at the end than it is long, yeah, yeah. Uh, and w- w- what is the exact... Right prior to that, the, this, the lead-in sentence that the narrator... You could not consider her handsome. You could not consider her handsome, yes. <laughs> Marvelously understated transition into the description of the queen. Um, now, again, remember the narrator at the beginning saying many people say that, like, there's... You could not possibly envision them too grotesque. Like, think of the craziest thing possible, and, like, that will be just like what the goblins are. It's like, but that's not really true. They actually weren't that bad. And now he, when he actually gets us a description, we find, well, actually, that sounds pretty grotesque. I wasn't picturing anything. Like, I, I did not, I mean, I pick, was picturing big, bulbous head and, you know, f- soft, flappy feet and, you know, really out of proportion body and stuff. I wasn't picturing perpendicular eyes and, uh, no, I didn't know what to call the nose. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's, so I, I think another moment of the sort of, Interesting sort of sneakiness uh, and uh, whimsicality, in some, at least, uh, of the narrator. But so the queen, whom we couldn't really call handsome, um, objects to. Now she's still sensitive on the marry a human woman front because this was her husband's first wife, and he st- she still doesn't understand why he would do that, right? Why he would choose to do that. So the king who is obviously very much afraid of the queen, 
and Harrowit both spin plan A, that is the Mary Irene plan, uh, or no, we should call it the Bride of Harrowit plan, uh, <laughs> principle, um, the, the, the king and Harrowit spin it as self-sacrifice, clearly out of fear of the queen. But Harrowit's initial response seems to suggest that he's really quite looking forward to this. Now, one of the things he's looking forward to is torturing her, right? So, I mean, this is not like, uh, you know, Harrowit is just looking for love and, and, you know, this is, you know, going to be like Shrek or something, right? Um, well, you know, ugly guy with big head, marrying princess, you know, two of them working it out. Totally Shrek-like. That was a completely justified <laughs> illusion, I think. Uh, but anyway, that's that's not that doesn't seem. That, I mean, it's certainly not the attitude that he's approaching it with completely. But but it does suggest, I think, a kind of. And we can see here the sort of conflicted sense of their own identity, their sense of their own cultural identity that the Coplins have, and their conflicted relationship with humans, both despising them, but also sort of grudgingly looking up to them, and even having the you know the, the their desire to. Uh, annoy them and 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 cause mischief and cause suffering um, is is sort of still triggered by this sense of well envy in part you know their their malice is still clearly um, they don't seem to believe all of their own rhetoric about how superior they are to humans um, before. Before Oh, they're, they're creatures. That was the other thing I want to talk about, about the goblins. The goblin creatures. We have had several allusions to the goblin creatures, the first of which was, <clears throat> the first of which was in that passage um, from the very beginning that, that I already alluded to just a couple minutes ago, the, like, you know, the really grotesque, uh, the, and then the narrator, remember, he says, I think they were actually thinking of the goblin creatures, because some people can't distinguish between the two. Like Ludi, for instance. She just considers them all goblins. She doesn't realize there's any difference between the goblins and their creatures. You know, and then we get that ominous book more about their creatures later on. I and mean, there were a couple times where we got them. Well, we finally get the goblin creatures chapter in this section. What do you make of that? How does, how does the nature of the goblin creatures and sort of the fact of the existence of the goblin creatures, how does that change uh, or inform our understanding of the goblins? Um, one thing that we're told is that the, the goblin creatures, because they uh, spend so much time with the goblins, take on a sort of human appearance, which, su- which suggests that what's happening to the goblins is going the other way, that the goblins are becoming bestial as well as... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like, he says explicitly that the two of them are like meeting in the middle. That although the goblin creatures have become warped and, and grotesque, they're becoming more human, and the goblins are moving down to their level. So even though the goblins, we're told, are, have become more clever, and we see they have these huge heads, uh, and they consider themselves very smart, and the narrator seems to invite us to believe that they're very smart, um, though maybe we're not supposed to believe him there after all, I think. But anyway, you know, their heads are really big. So, but they're not actually becoming greater. This is not actually evolution upwards. This is, this is, this is change downwards. Um, and it's as a consequence... With the creatures, we're told again explicitly that the reason they're changing like this is because of being forced to live underground, which is unnatural for both the goblins and the creatures. And that living in this unnatural state is what has caused them to be changed in this way. And what are the ways in which they've changed exactly? What are the specific changes that have happened with the goblin creatures? 
They're all getting mixed up, not just with the goblins, but with each other. Okay, good. Like, species are being blended. You can't always tell them apart. Like, a thing which looks vaguely like a dog, but it might be something else. Um, yeah, so they're, they're, it's interesting they're, because they're not becoming completely, there's, it's not that they're becoming identical. I mean, they're, like, physiologically wild differences between them. But, they're becoming less and less distinctly like the species that they were. And not just like, this is no longer like a cat because now its legs are five feet long, right? That's different from a cat. It's true. But, um, but yeah, all of the, all of their creatures are, are ceasing to have the, the sort of distinctions among them. Um, and I, I agree. I think that that's, that that's really this sort of homogenizing of them. Those, it's a, it's a, it's a homogeneity of a, sort of a deeper kind again. It's not, doesn't mean they all start looking alike. Exactly. What else? What else about the creatures did you find interesting? Keeping on that theme that the noise they make is described as like every kind of noise at once, but it's not described as harmonious, it's described as dissonant. So it's, there's still, you know, this, this clang of, uh, of different sounds being made, but it's all being made by, you know, one creature or one set of creatures. It's every, he lists pretty much every verb or onomatopoeia that could be used to this, or adjective or whatever to yeah. describe a, a animal noise. And it says, it's not like any of these, but it's only like something all of them mingled in one horrible dissonance. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's a great, that, that passage is, I think, a really wonderful illustration of that change that we can see in their natures. That they don't, they don't make any of those individual animal noises anymore. Now they make together, and it seems even individually, uh, dissonant, like this dissonant blend of all of these animals. Note also, they're all tame animals now, even though many of them were not originally from tame animals. That the goblins were very clever, this is one of the positive things said about their cleverness, they were very clever about capturing and taming wild animals, like bears and boars and things were also, you know, and foxes, were among the stock which led to the current goblin creatures, in addition to dogs <coughs> and cats and things. So, um, they're tame, and remember we talked last time about, what was his name, Glimper, Glumper, Anyway, the dad of the goblin family that Curdy was eavesdropping on. Um, he was talking about how there are no wild animals in the goblin realms, and it's unpatriotic to even insinuate that there would be wild animals. Um, so they're all tame. And, but yet, that doesn't mean that it's orderly. Uh, that sort of suggests, like, ah, see, now there is peace. And, and I mean, th- there is a sense in which um, that could be at least made to sound or made to seem almost, like, Golden Age-like. Right back in the Golden Age, when all was peaceful, humans were at peace with the animals, right? There were no wild animals, there were no tame animals, because we were at union with them, and we were walking among them, and everything was fine. And it was only when we, you know, when, when things started to get more chaotic over time, and, and, and the ages, you know, these, you can see this kind of myth, both, uh, you know, both in, in, in pagan mythology, we can, of course, see the same thing in the Garden of Eden story, this idea of the relationship between humans and animals, and that you know, it has gone wrong, and the reason that there are now wild animals and tame animals, and the difference between wild and tame animals is that something has changed for the worse in our relationship with the animal kingdom. This is an old legend in many, uh, it, you know, from in, in many mythologies, and so with the goblins, it's almost like a sort of a warped return to the golden age, right? There are no wild animals. Wild animals and tame animals are as one, and they are all domesticated. They all live in harmony with the goblins. Except, as Jordan points out, harmony is exactly what they're not and what they don't show. They all live in dissonance, is what it really amounts to. It's also interesting because the goblins kind of abuse them. They have poor, miserable lives and never get to go on any kind of romp. I mean, that could just be because of the undergroundness, but I think there is a passage that suggests the goblins, you know, 
put, put, put them to work in horrible ways? Yeah, I mean, of course, the primary thing that we see proposed to put them to work to do is to kill Curdie, right? They're gonna, the queen proposes to execute Curdie by, you know, tying him up and having the animals attack him. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I mean, now that, I mean, I guess, like, Depends on your point of view as to whether you think that's mistreating the, the, their creatures or not. I don't know if the creatures would like it or not, but um, but it is certainly. I think uh, obviously. No, I, I can't find the passage I thought was there. Yeah, yeah. I, I might have just been mis- mis- misinterpreting the passage about how they hate, how much they hate being underground. Yeah, it is unnatural. I mean, and that I think is is and we because we see them sneaking out too, out into the upper land to to romp around, right? Um, <coughs> and you know, as they're doing in the you know, in the garden of Irene's house for no obvious reason and with little obvious motivation. Except where it, it is suggested, it is a sign that the goblins themselves are coming closer um, because their creatures, which is why their creatures are around the house more, because their creatures are following them. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think uh, there's a lot that we can see about goblin culture from looking at, from looking at the creatures. Uh, but speaking of... Uh, Curdy, as we just briefly, as I just briefly alluded to, the possibility of his horrifying dismemberment at the hands of the goblin creatures. What do we see in 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 Curdy here? We didn't talk about Curdy as a character uh, much, or really at all, last time. Um, you know, this is a this is clearly as this story has been unfolding, especially as it unfolds in this middle section. We get this you know dual protagonist story, right? We get Irene's story and Curdy's story, which are obviously connected together. Um, we're, that is very clearly signaled at the beginning, as of course Curdy is only introduced when he is connected with Irene um, and comes to her rescue the first time, which appears to be foreshadowing of what may happen later on. If if I'm not leaping too wildly ahead there with that uh, with that conjecture, because um, I agree, he's, we're telegraphing. McDonald is telegraphing this stuff pretty clearly, I think. Um, but nevertheless, after this, their stories proceed, and we keep going back and forth between Irene's story and Curdie's story. What is what's important about Curdie? Do you think? what are we being shown in Curdie? How is he different from Irene? Uh, and what seems to be what seems to be important about that? What, what what seems to be the stuff that we're supposed to be noticing and thinking about about Curdy? What does he show us? He gives up a lot less easily than who? <laughs> he is determined. He's very courageous. He is very brave, right? Even when he's locked up and they're talking about starving him to death, he's not really afraid. Um, and you know, and as he said, if he if he uh, were free from the thing and had his pickaxe in his hand, he wouldn't be afraid of anything, no matter how many goblins there were there. Um, and even, you know, as we keep being told, as he's following them and tailing them and listening in on them, you know, he's afraid. He's not afraid for himself at any point. He's just afraid that he's going to be discovered and therefore lose the opportunity to, to find out what he's going to find out. Um so certainly there's a, I mean, he's, he's, he's a little bit, uh, you know, he's a little bit Jack the Giant Killer-esque, right? He's, he has a, he has a bit of that, both his courage and also his resourcefulness as well. He's a character who seems like he would be, in many ways, at home as the protagonist of an Andrew Lang story. Does that seem like a fair thing to say? We have clear parallels between him and Irene, right? Especially once Irene is given a ball of thread to follow, <coughs> this is pretty transparent, right? Curdie, who has been following 
a clue, a, 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 you know, a line of thread all the way, uh, you know, for several chapters now. Which is tied up, uh, which is wound up by his mother, who helps him and is very clever with that kind of thing. Yes, exactly, exactly. And Kirby's problem is that he can follow the thread, but he can't keep it untangled, right? Because sometimes he has to go really fast and doesn't have time to wind it. So he comes home with his thread all in a muddle. And, yes, and his mother, who is very clever, I guess, uh, manages to unwind it for him and roll it up. Um, so, yeah, certainly the parallel then, not only between Curdie and Irene, but between Curdie's mom and Irene's huge grandmother. Um, definitely, definitely. And yet, of course, obvious differences there, right? That is the difference between his ball of string, which is just string, which is why it gets tangled up. It's very coarse and normal string, as opposed to the obviously magical spider silk string uh, that she has. Um, there's nothing fairy-like about his mom. I mean, she's awesome, but she's awesome in perfectly mundane forms of awesomeness. Um, yeah. Curdy, I feel like Curdy's courage comes from... Curdy's courage comes from... Um, his, 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 Clearly. He knows, that, he knows that he's able to, to do anything because he has his rhymes. He's not great at the goblins, but physically what he can do. And Irene has the, a similar kind of courage, but hers is more based on blind faith. Because she says, my grandmother gave me this ball of thread. My grandmother says it will always work, so there's no way that it won't work. So I can just walk into the middle of the forest at night, and Craig would could do the same thing, but he would do it because he knows that he can handle it. So there, I think it's very similar, but you know, the important difference is Curdy's faith is in himself, and Irene's is blindly based on his grandmother. Yeah, Curdy is sort of personally equipped. For what he's doing. <coughs> I mean, he's a minor. He's the son of a minor. He's not... Uh, we're not told exactly how old Kurt is. But he's clearly still juvenile. Um, even though... I mean, Irene is eight. That we're told clearly at the beginning. Um, Kurt is obviously older than she is. Though still juvenile. So, I don't. I mean, I, I don't know exactly where to guess. Where would you guess? Based on what we've read. What age have you been thinking Kurt probably was? Fourteen-ish? Twelve. Twelve or thirteen? Yeah, twelve... Right around there is what I've been thinking. I guess 12, I think 12 is probably the number I had kind of unexamined in my mind, but somewhere around there. Still, still, again, so clearly juvenile, not yet even necessarily, uh, you know, like adolescent, not, not quite young adult yet, but, but still, but yet also still very capable, right? He, he has strength. He is a miner. He can mine on his own. You know, he can take his pickaxe into the mountain by himself, not just in order to sneak around and follow the goblins, but also to mine ore independently, so as to get his mom a new petticoat, right? So, um, so he, you know, he's by his birth, by his training, um, by his, the support that he has and the tools that he's been given, both the material tools in the terms of his pickaxe and his ball of string, um, but also sort of the intangible tools that he's been given by his raising, by his excellent father and excellent <coughs> mother, um, you know, who have given him honesty and courage and resolution and the ability to rhyme and, uh, you know, all of the other things that he has and can do. But you're right. Irene has fewer resources of her own, like Curdy does. Curdy can handle himself. Irene can't handle herself. Not in the same way, anyway. Though she certainly does have resources. She's a princess, after all, right? And therefore, there are many ineffable things about her, like the fact that she can't tell a lie. Uh, and her innate sense of good, right? I've been thinking, of course, back to the dispute about keeping her promise about kissing Curdy, right? That Ludi just does not understand, 
because Ludi is not a princess, that you must keep your word. And that uh, how bad it would be to kiss a miner's boy is just far, far less bad than not keeping your promises. Um, that might not sound like a you know survival skill that Irene has, but but it is important, I think, um, and does and does give her does give her a kind of power if it's uh, if it's quite right to call it that exactly. Um, but but I want to get to the huge grandmother. Um, we see the grandmother several times here, and there are several very interesting conversations. At least I find them very interesting between Irene and the grandmother. Um, what are some things that we see here? What are, th- what are things that jumped out at you? And I will say, as I ask this question, you don't have to be able to explain them. Even if they're things that you just found strange, you know, found strange and inexplicable. You know, even strange and inexplicable in like a black bowl of Norway kind of way. Aren't you impressed that it's been like four <laughs> classes since I've referred to the black bowl of Norway? <laughs> Any, 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 any things? None that I've distracted you thinking about the Black Bull of Norway. Uh, what do you notice? Stuff, <coughs> stuff that you found curious or interesting about the, about the conversations with the grandmother. Is this where she weird age? Where she, yeah. she talks about her age. She shows up appearing as three and twenty, we are told. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they have a long conversation about age and what it means to be old and how old she is. And, um, yeah, yeah. The people are very silly. To think that being old means, you know, being all decrepit and foolish and things. That's not really an essential part of being old at all. Yeah. I found that really confusing because I can understand the argument that the right kind of old age means strength and beauty and mirth and courage, but then clear eyes and strong, painless limbs. I can see them separating, you know, the spiritual qualities of, you know, with age and wisdom. But the idea that someone gets old and then doesn't, like, gets the opposite of arthritis seems (laughs) kind of bizarre. Right. I mean, certainly if you just take what she says perfectly literally and apply it universally, it seems irrational and kind of mean-spirited, right? I mean, you know, like you're going to go to like a 60-year-old person who's developing arthritis and say, come on, snap out of it. That's not what old age means. Get with the program. You should have strong limbs and clear eyes. What's wrong with you? Right? I mean, that's that would seem mean-spirited, right? Um what do you think? What do you think she's getting at there? Or what does this show us about her? Would be another way of asking that question. Remember, there have been. She's never exactly said how old she was. The one thing she has said, the one thing she has told us, was, which gives us any chronological, genuine chronological, that is genuine, unconnected with appearance, chronological cues about her, is her relationship to Irene. She says, I am your great-great-grandmother. And when uh, Irene, who still doesn't understand what the great-great means, at first thinks it sort of, like, takes it as referring to size, and then takes it as an honorific, and so honorifically calls her her great-great-great-great-grandmother, right? And she's like, no, I'm not so great as all that, right? Um, so she, she's insisting, I'm your great-great-grandmother, and she gives, like, I'm, I'm your, like, father's mother's father's mother, right? She's less than 2,000. She's less than 2,000, right? We know that. But in that first conversation, Irene was like, are you 50? Are you 100? Right? And she's like, no, no, I'm much older than that. You get the sense of like, no, we're not talking about the right scale here. And then when she suggests that she's, you know, maybe when I'm 2,000 years old, I will be different in these ways. Um, You know, I will not fear anymore. We're saying, okay, we're a totally different scale of years here that she's using. So she's somewhere between 100 and 2,000. Um... 567, I'm sure. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's a good guess. I think we have lots of evidence to support that. Um, 
she's clearly out of scale. So, which means, of course, when she's talking about age, she's obviously not talking about human age exactly. That is not on the normal human scale. Then what's she talking about? Then what's the point of saying what she says? Age does not mean being, to, you know, it means strong eyes and clear eyes and strong limbs. Among people, that's not true, actually. And it's not their fault if that's not true. Therefore, she's not a not human, at least. I mean, it seems a roundabout way of saying that, though. Yes, I agree. Uh, especially since it seems not only roundabout, but by this point, superfluous, right? Um, it's been abundantly clear since meeting one that she's not a normal human being. Even though, again, Irene is still <coughs> thinking of her in normal human terms. That is, remember what, when she's talking about the pigeon's eggs with Ludie? And Ludie's like, well, we'll get you a pigeon's egg, and then you can eat one. She's like, no, don't, because then grandmother will have one skewer. Obviously, this is not going to be a problem for the grandmother, right? She, there's not going to be, like, a pigeon egg shortage. And it's, it seems equally clear that... You know, when the grandmother is referring to her pigeons, she's not referring to the pigeons that they could see from or the bottom moon. Floor. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or her moon. Exactly. It's not the regular moon either. So, yeah. No, I mean, it's we have lots of reasons to see, not only that Irene is still not processing the fact that she's not a normal human being, but we that we should process that fact. So, it would be an indirect way of saying it, and it is obviously an unnecessary thing to be said at this point. Merely, I'm not a normal human being. This... This kind of begins to approach a topic that I wanted to get to, though there were some other ways that I was planning to get to it, but but I'll ask it anyway. Are we supposed to be reading, to be interpreting the grandmother allegorically? Now, careful, this is almost a trick question. Um, it isn't a trick question. I, I mean that exactly as I ask it. But it's a trick question only because the kinds of answers that people, uh, that modern readers often give to that question are mistaken. That is, when I ask that, I don't mean what most modern readers mean by interpreting something allegorically. Um, okay, let me explain. Uh, an allegory, technically, what's an allegory? Well, can anyone explain to me what an allegory is? Some of you have read medieval allegories and could do this. What is an allegory? How does an allegory work? <laughs> I'm not confident in my. version of allegory that you can find. It's the simplest version of that. Not that these are like intellectually simple, but in their interpretive structure would be like a medieval morality play, right? When somebody comes out and says, hi, my name is Mankind, right? I represent, and, and so you know, he represents the human soul, right? Um, and then you have somebody who walks out on stage and it's like, my name is Iniquity. And you know what his job is. His job is going to be to go over to mankind and try to lead him. He's going to introduce him to several of his friends, right? Which are going to be named things like lust and gluttony and pride. And, the, and that through the, they are going to team up to try to bring him to a place which is going to be called hell or destruction or something like that. 
or death with a capital T. And then there are going to be others that will come and try to help him, right? And and, this, and all of those things that you like, you know where you are. You see this character, you hear that character's words, and you say this character stands for this thing. When I hear this person talk, I am I am I am learning something about pride or about gluttony. Okay, and they're they're predictable. They're predictable in the sense that like you know what gluttony is going to be about. Um, I mean, in famously in uh, in Langland's Pierce Plowman in Middle English allegory, which is a wonderful allegory and quite complicated, weird in lots of ways, but 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 very interesting and complicated. When he when he brings out the seven deadly sins, so we have these these characters named after the, the seven deadly sins acting in their allegorical ways. Like we know where we're going to meet gluttony in the bar. Of course, he's going to be in the town. Uh, because the first thing he's going to be doing is getting sloppy drunk, right? And he's not going to... And, of course, then he introduces him to his friend, Lust, because everybody knows that gluttony, uh, that's what happens. That's what gluttony's job is to do, is to get your guard down and then introduce you to his friend, Lust. Um, and so, anyway, like, like, we know where we are, and we know what to do with each character. Now, so when I say, are we supposed to read the grandmother allegorically, I mean it in that technical sense. Not, is there... Like, is she symbolic of anything? Are we supposed to associate her with anything? Does, is there any kind of higher meaning associated with her, or higher principles being illustrated through her? I, that I, I, I feel fairly confident in saying yes to. That's true of most characters in most good books. But, what I, so what I mean is technically, are we supposed to interpret her allegorically? Because we could do that. And I think that there are several things in this section which might appear to be props to do that. I am, like, that when we see, when we hear the grammar, we realize we're really hearing somebody else or something else, that there's a, there's a specific way in which was, are we supposed to take her allegorically, do you think? So you're asking if we are supposed to be able to easily forgive the pun pigeonhole it? <laughs> well, okay. Yes, but pigeonhole sounds so bad. Not just be. Because I actually, I, the pigeon thing is nice. But, but no, I, allegory, allegory is richer than that. What allegory does, it's not that it creates a simplistic drama. What it does is actually allows you to examine in really complicated way abstract things. It's a way of representing abstract things by the means of concrete representation in order to give you actually more freedom to talk about the nature of that complex abstract thing. That's why they really liked mystery plays. When you see how people act in a mystery play, when you see how the characters act in a mystery play, it, often really interesting things are being suggested about what is the nature of temptation, what is the nature of these of these individual people, like what is the role of this particular virtue in its relationship with these other vices. Sure, you could just like preach a sermon on those abstract ideas, and many people did, but you can actually do more at least this is this is the pro-allegory argument by representing those things in these concrete terms and having them interact. So, so I'm uncomfortable with pigeonhole because that suggests that by asking the question, that the question is sort of a trick question in the sense that I'm uh, that I'm hoping everybody will say no because obviously it would be a horrible thing to do to McDonald's okay. story to say like oh yes by all means let us simplify the grandmother and just put her in this one small notch and stop thinking about her okay. in any other way. But rather, I, I, it is possible I think to interpret her allegorically. In fact, in some places, I almost find it hard not to. That is, at particular moments, I find it hard not to. Um, in the end, I don't think we are supposed to, but but there's there's justification for it. The one moment I can think of is when she's finally collapsed in front of the rocks, 
And the, the only thing I can think of that being is a discussion of faith, because you're quite obviously following something that you can't see and something that no one else can see. So everyone thinks crazy because you're following an invisible thing. But she just has to trust that where she's going is the right place. And when she finally gets this pile of rocks, she just lies down because she has her moment of doubt, I guess. Yeah, say. yeah. No, I mean, faith is a, is a really important theme in this whole section. And the grandmother keeps bringing it up. Um, we've got it. It comes up first when in her conversation with Irene about Ludi and Ludi's not being able to believe, and she's like, "Why didn't Ludi believe?" And she's you know, like, "Is it bad for Ludi? You know, and you know, is it bad?" And you know, the grandmother's saying, "No, it's it's not her fault that she didn't believe. She can't believe. It's not possible for her to believe. If she saw me with her own eyes, she wouldn't believe." Um, so just don't talk about it with her. Then the second time when they're talking about her moon, her lamp, right? That light that she puts up, and and Irene. You know, with delightful innocence, asks, Is, "Isn't that a dead giveaway? I mean, you've got this shining beacon outside your window. Like, doesn't everybody see that?" And she says, "No, almost nobody sees it, actually." You know, and she says, "You know, wh- why don't lots of people come up and find you? Because you know, you've got this huge light hanging out your window." And she says, "Almost nobody sees it, and those who do don't believe it." Uh, and, do you remember what she says? If you know, it's just, uh, what would happen? You know, Irene says. What would happen if they tried to follow the light and they came up here to find you? The grandmother says it would be better for them if they did. Right? All the better for them if they did. But, in truth, they don't, actually. At least not very often. And if they did come up to the tower, if they did see the light and then come up to the tower, instead of just rubbing their eyes and trying to convince themselves that they hadn't seen it, they would probably just find an empty carriage here. And she even suggests, <coughs> in that wonderful moment, she suggests to Irene... If you didn't believe in me, right now what you would see around you is an empty room. It, instead of all of the beautiful things that are really there. Right, so this is not a question of, this is an illusion, or this is, the, you know, what is really here is a garret, and I am taking you into this other thing. But, but rather, this is reality. My rooms here are reality. And if people came upstairs and just saw an empty garret, they would be seeing what is not there. Or rather, they wouldn't be seeing what really is there. Um, but it's but it's about their faith. It's about their belief. It's a consequence of what they believe or what they don't believe, what they're able to see. And then the third time is, of course, the threat. You know, just as Rachel says, this is a really important thing. And it was actually, remember when I said the question, raising the question about do we interpret the grandmother allegorically and that that wasn't what was going to impel me to do it, this is what was going to impel me to do it, was the faith thing and the following the threat. As it seems to be... Um, a moment, in fact, I would even say, I mean, if it is allegorical, it's a brilliant allegory of faith. Um, and I'm perfectly, I, I, I'm very cheerful to accept that thread, I mean, which seems to be quite, <laughs> I almost made a joke like you, I was going to say, quite transparently a symbol <laughs> of, uh, of, of, of faith. Um, and her, her following it, um, but then, of course, that brings up that that, that is actually, actually for me what compelled me to the question: Do we then have to take the next step? If the thread is a symbol of faith, what does that make the grandmother? And do we have to go there? You see what I mean? That's what actually leads me to be to start thinking in allegorical ways, and why I was asking for your advice on like: Do we go there or do we not go there? And why do you think not? I, I, I think avoid it based on you know I don't think the grandmother is God or an angel. She's what, Aslan? Yeah, yeah. Not not yet. Wait for it, wait for it. Um, But actually, that's exactly it. Right. Um, 
In the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan isn't exactly an allegorical figure, but he's darn close to it. Um, and he obviously is representing God, Christ more specifically. But, um, yeah, and that is made, I mean, Lewis explicitly points to that. And I guess in, in, in a sense, that would be one way, though we haven't talked about the Chronicles of Narnia yet, almost exactly the way I was thinking of this question in my own head. Is the grandmother like Aslan? If not, why not? It's true. That is a huge difference. And a significant one. <laughs> one has to admit, a significant one. Um, no, seriously. She is very comforting. If she is a representation of God, she's a very different kind of representation of God. Or a representation of God in a very different way. And I don't think, in the end, I don't think we're compelled to do it. But I want to have a reason for that. That is, I mean, because that argument works very well. The following of the thread. You know, faith, very important. Uh, the relationship, your relationship with and access to this person is dependent upon your faith. And when you do have faith in this person, and that person then permits you into her presence, and then she she both gives comfort and also assigning a task at the same time, which two things are one thing, by giving this ring and the thread, acting out that task, doing that thing, is this really quite striking symbol of faith. The following of the thread, even though it's going to take you in places that you don't expect, but you have to trust that... You have to trust in the giver of the thread and follow along the thread which nobody else can see uh, to this place. I mean, like, here we go. I've got my, I've got my grandmother as an allegory for God uh, argument all made. And if I'm going to reject it, I need a refutation, not just, not just readerly displeasure in that. Yeah. Well, I can actually think of several other things in support of it. I can think of one pretty strong condemnation, which is that Eileen has a much more personal relationship with her huge great-grandmother than it is possible for most people to have. So without Irene being herself, you know, a, 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 a descendant of God in a very personal way, which I think is kind of heretical slightly. Uh, yes. Yes. Uh, I, I don't really see it. Like, the, the idea that there's, you know, another child of God, you know, in addition to... Right. The oh, children. Yes, but it's <laughs> clearly not her, her granddaughter. But see, that's the thing. Irene's not her daughter... She's her great great granddaughter. But we no are all it. children of God. No At a remove. <laughs> not like Jesus, it's true. It would be heretical to say that, like, you know, like. Everyone is Jesus. Everyone is Jesus. <laughs> yeah, that would be a good way to but say it. Irene is but Cody doesn't. Cody is clearly a more worthy protagonist. He, he doesn't have any relationship to this grandmother. At no least familial yet. relationship. And, and that's, I think, what we're. Um, what does the familial relationship mean allegorically? It has to mean something if, if we're in an allegorical framework because we're placing this concrete representation for... You don't put an element in a concrete representation without it. I mean, if I understand the allegory... Yeah, right. no, I mean... Uh, yeah, yeah, no, you're right. And, of course, one, one counter-argument that I would make from that would be, at the least, there doesn't seem equally compelling reasons to interpret the whole thing allegorically. All of the characters. That is, because if we start asking questions like, then what does Irene represent? I can answer that. <coughs> then what does Curdie represent? What does Curdie's dad represent? You could. I mean, look, 
You try hard enough, you can make anything an allegory, anything, any kind of argument. Hey, man, like, let St. Augustine loose on this book for, like, 15 <laughs> seconds, and he could do it for you. Uh, that man's the master of allegorization. I just, uh, it's one of the things I love about St. Augustine. Um, uh, I mean... I've seen it done with Pixar movies. Hey, why not? You can, that's the great thing about allegorization. You can do it with anything. Uh... And that, and by the way, that is the purest, that is, or not the purest, but that is the most common form of allegory in the Middle Ages. When people think about allegory, they tend to think about it as a way of writing, like the, like the, the morality plays, for instance, or, or various allegories like The Name of the Rose and stuff like that. Um, you know, that allegory was like a genre of written literature. Most commonly, most persuasively, what it mainly was in the Middle Ages was a way of reading literature. It didn't matter if it had been composed as an allegory. It was a way of getting fruit from a work of literature, even if it was... I mean, you, so, so you could take, like, the dirtiest, vilest piece of pagan literature, and you could get fruit out of it by reading it allegorically. Um, so, uh, so yeah, no, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Pixar films, anything you want, you can make allegorical. Um, and, that's, and that's excellent. That's very good. That's an approach that most modern people don't like particularly. But again, and, and, and not one that I'm particularly wanting to take here. That is, we could exert ourselves and devise an allegory of great and staggering cleverness. Um, I don't think that that would necessarily be a very profitable endeavor. Um, actually, I should go in a minute. But let's think in terms of... Let's keep thinking about Irene and her grandmother specifically. Because if, if we're not going to read her allegorically, if we're not going to say she represents... God, or do we want to be vaguer, the divine, or something like that, um, or maybe something different, maybe that's not what she represents, maybe it's a different thing that she allegorizes, I don't know. If we're not going to say that, then what are we going to say? And I still want to say something, if we're not going to say that. Um, how does she work, if that isn't how she's supposed to work in the story? Um, but also, before we go, I just want to kind of draw attention to some of the elements, especially in with the stuff which happens with the grandmother. Um, back which, when I was talking about the line stories, I was calling like the rough edges of the fairy tales. That is not magic that's used to like advance the plot in clear ways, or you know, but that that stuff which those sort of mythic elements which just come in and are never explained and are not like enormously clearly functional in the story, but are just sort of evocative and powerful. And I think we can see several incidents of these kinds of things, like the brooch that stabs her thumb, at which gets really... Inf- and we're never told. We're not given the backstory of that. Whose brooch was that? Why was it poisonous or malignant in the way that it was? Um, the grandmother looks grave when she sees it, and she cleanses it and heals it. But why did that happen? And why did the... Who was the housekeeper, right? Who had that in her collection? Why, how did the housekeeper get it? Where does it come from? It was in an old cabinet. Yeah, I mean, it was just there. We don't know. I mean, so, I mean, that's... like. An element, an obviously magical element in the story, which which never gets explained. Uh, the the fire of roses, um, the fire of roses is just this really this really evocative moment. I think um, the fire of roses, which purify, but which Irene can't touch because it would burn her and her dress. 
up, but the grandmother can touch it, um, and she can take the roses out of the fire and throw them back in the fire. Um, oh, the flaming perishable, which uh, is with the <laughs> See, see, now you're into the allegorical thing, right? See, you're I'm... just being smoky. <laughs> yeah, but it works, doesn't it? See, you can totally go there. Not that you should, but you could. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Um, this, there's even you know, as you know, we alluded to in class last time, the spinning wheel. Right, sort of the fact of the spinning wheel and the stuff that we're told about the spinning wheel. I only spin while the moonlight is shining on the spinning wheel. Why? <laughs> Why do you do that? What is it? You know that the, the, so the connection between the moon and spinning wheel and her pigeons and like what the, her the the pigeons bring her the spider silk from somewhere very far away and 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 the way in which. In what she tells us about the lamp, she puts out the lamp so that her pigeons can find their way home. And then, of course, we see Irene herself um, seeing it and finding her way home by it, like the pigeons. No, it's not that she is an allegory of a pigeon. Yeah, it's her. It's her flock, right? Right. <laughs> Not the mystery of the afterlife. So <laughs> not in a literal, like sort of Cersei kind of way uh, or anything. But yeah, yeah. Um, are they literal pigeons that she keeps? Is I think a question that one could ask. That are in fact when she talks about her pigeons, is she speaking allegorically? One of the, one of her eggs she eats those. That's frightening. <laughs> they sustain her. Maybe she's evil. Oh. No. <laughs> anyway, I said this is this is where you can do this. There are elements in the story I think which invite us to do this. I am not convinced that that's what we must do, and that it's the only way to read her. But it, there are definitely elements in the story which sort of push in that direction. <coughs> I'm not sure that this discussion hasn't like net pushed me more towards it than I was expecting it to. Uh, I kind of I, I intended to come in with like a plausible explanation for that and expecting you guys effectually to talk me out of it. That didn't happen. Yeah, we'll see. We'll keep thinking about it. Try harder next time. Uh, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see how things go. Um, thank you. That's all for this week. Next time, Professor Olson will continue with the last part of The Princess and the Goblin, chapters 21 through 32. Thanks for listening and Godspeed.